This evening we're going to be in Acts chapter 27 and 28. We'll finish her up tonight. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 27 and 28. There's some sign-up sheets out there for the kids' camp if you're available from the 5th through the 9th and you want to help out. Lots of different opportunities for you. Camp counselor uh, setup uh, only or teardown only or throughout the week you can be in charge of like the BB gun range or the archery range or something like that. And, um, lots of opportunities to help serve out there. It does take a lot of us. Um, it's almost a, probably a 4 to 1 adult to child ratio out there. So. So it's going to be it's going to be close. Uh, um, I know we definitely need some more counselors, male counselors. Like, we usually have two boy cabins, and so um, or is it one boy? Yeah, we have two boy cabins usually, and three girls is how it usually works. Is how it plays out. So anyway, those are out there if you're interested. And um, as we get closer to July 5th, that'll be coming forward. Also, turning in the kids' registrations, just set them in that uh, that well, I got a little tray out there, I guess. It's a leather tray out there that you can place the registration forms in. I've already put a few of them in there. Um, If you're concerned about cash being left in there, go ahead and um, just say we paid and drop it in the tithe box if that makes you feel more comfortable about it being out like that. Um, And if you're worried about information, just turn it face down and set it on there as well. Um, So that's a good place to leave that. All right. Acts chapter 27 and 28. Paul is moving on to Rome, finally. He's uh, appealed to Caesar. He's given his testimony to everybody who will listen. And, uh, and uh, when it's time, it's time. Um, one thing we'll pick up here on in chapter 27 and 28 is that God is moving Paul on his plan. Um, it's on his dime. God's paying for it. Um, doesn't have to book a, a cruise. Uh, God is getting him there one way or another. Um, not the most comfortable way to go, but... Uh, he is on God's travel agency. <laughs> and so he's been ministering along the way to whoever will listen. And as he moves on to Rome, it's an interesting thing for us to watch. As someone who walks by faith, as Paul walks by faith, we get to see what it looks like. Paul has great faith. I don't know that I have great faith. I have faith. Um, I think everybody's given a measure of faith. The Bible tells us that. Um, some of us are given the gift of faith, though. That's a little extra. There's something more there. And um, and so although none of us are going to be shipwrecked probably in our lifetime and floating around in the ocean and waiting on God to bring us to an island, and you know, a lot of these things may seem a little bit out of our realm of faith. Um, we can certainly apply them to the little steps of faith that we take here in Maryville, Missouri, or wherever you're from. Um, to walk by faith is to walk by faith. The size and the scope can vary, but faith is faith. It's trusting in God. It's trusting in God because of what he said, because of what he told us, because he would have promised, not out of presumption. And I really want to focus on that tonight. Um, a step of faith isn't, a, isn't the same as a step of presumption. Um, I'm going to step out by faith even though God hasn't told me to. That's presumption. That's the difference. I'm going to step by faith because God's told me to. That's a step of faith. That's a true step of faith. And I think we'll see the difference here in Paul's uh, teaching and in, in, in Luke's writing. Verse 1. And when it was decided that we should set sail or should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of, August, of the Augustan regiment, which means this guy Julian was um, that close to Julius Caesar. 
Okay, so he was a part of that regiment. So I, I don't know how many are in a regiment, how many centurions are being a regiment, maybe four, uh, maybe more than that. But a centurion was in charge of 100. A regiment would be larger than that. Um, we would call a centurion a, a company. In the Marine Corps, we had four platoons or five, maybe sometimes, in a company which had 100 people, so your platoon had 25. I know this isn't very interesting, but I want you to understand um, how high up this Julius was, very high up in the, in the, in the uh, military. And he was put in charge of Paul, this prisoner, along with others, but Paul was with him, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. So... Entering a ship uh, of uh, that place, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Now, it's late in the season of sailing. It's in October here that they're going to start off, and, um, and it's close to November's when you stop sailing. That's when you just wait till spring and, that, and pick it up in March again. Um, but they're going to try to get Paul to Rome quickly, and so they're just going to make it a straight shot. Aristocaras, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. And the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go with his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. That's an island, so they're they're going south. They're going below Cyprus. It's blocking those north winds for them. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is uh, off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and we and he put us on board. Now, what he means by that is, we can, as a as a centurion, uh, you're pretty high up in the command. You can kind of do whatever you want to do in the scope of Rome, you know, within their sphere. And so, if he says we're coming on your ship, guess what? You are now chartered for the Roman government. There's not much you can do about it. Um, and it paid well. I mean, it wasn't, they, they got paid for it. They didn't just commandeer the ship. They weren't that kind of people. They, they wanted them well. So that's what he did. We found a ship, an Alexandrian ship, and said, you know what? We're going to come. And when he had sailed, or when we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off um, Snidius, or Snidus, um, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off uh, Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. So there's already some resistance there. There's already some slowing of this. It's going to be a straight shot. won't take us very long. We can set off in the middle of October. It will only take us about a couple of weeks to get to Rome. We should be fine um, unless God says otherwise. Unless God says otherwise. It's always important, I think we'll see that, to, in our own lives, let God dictate the time frame. That's hard for us because we want things now and quickly and soon and let's go. I'm ready. I heard you. You want me to go to Rome? I'm going to Rome. Paul, we're going to Rome. Paul's learned by this time to say, we're going to get to Rome this year, next year, someday. He always planned on getting back to Jerusalem. I'm going to make it to Jerusalem. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Eh, I'll get there when God wants me to get there. I think that's important for us to learn we're on God's schedule. He doesn't do what we want him to do. He doesn't do it in our time frame. Um, I mean, poor Sarah and Abraham, right? <laughs> that was a 20-year wait for that promise kind of thing. Talk about waiting on God's timetable. Um, 
probably the most difficult thing for the Christian to learn. Probably the last thing a Christian learns is patience. Patience is a hard thing for us. It's a hard thing for me. I know that for myself anyway. It's a hard thing that in order for me to learn patience, God has to put me in situations that require it. And um, I don't like that. I like to move now. I like to go now. Um, I don't know what... Jeff is Jeff just teaching, isn't he? I don't know how long ago I asked Jeff, hey, make that crossing over there on the north side because we're going to build a road and the road's going to come up. It's going to come over. It's going to connect over here and it's going to be great. And then we're going to put that over here. And we're going to do that over there. It must have been five, six years ago he built that crossing. We just graveled it this spring or this, uh, yeah, this, this, this spring we graveled it. And we didn't even gravel it all the way over. I mean, we're just, we just graveled it there. I'm impatient. So, um, Bought $100 worth of Powerball tonight. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. <laughs> Quarter of a billion dollars will get you far in my plan. <laughs> my master plan. <laughs> no, God just said, no. Nope. I mean, you know, someday, I'm sure that's all going to come. To probably, you know, three generations from now, we'll get that road. You know, it'll be done. Eh. Patience. Patience. So, patience. Um, But he's feeling some resistance already. We're seeing some winds blow. We're seeing God slow things down a little bit. We're seeing uh, maybe some anxiousness out of Julius. Although he's given Paul favor, it's not like he's punishing Julius. Julius is going along for the ride. Julius is going to learn a lot of things from Paul's leadership. He's going to learn a lot of things about Paul's relationship with the true and living God through this. And remember, that's what it's about. My life is about people around me learning about the true living God. It's not about my time. It's not about my schedule. If I am to carry my cross daily, if I am to die to myself, if I am to give him my life and let it be consecrated unto thee, that means the only point of my life is to bring other people to this true and living God. And that's what Paul's there for. I'll be glad to go on the slow boat to Rome if it's going to bring others to Christ. I'll be glad to be shipwrecked if it's going to bring others to Christ. I'll be glad to be bit by a snake if it's going to bring others to Christ. Every one of these things that look, what a pain, what an annoying thing to happen to me is all meant for one reason. People are going to come to know Christ through this. How am I going to get people to listen to this prisoner, God may say. They don't look... When you see a prisoner in the orange jumpsuit here back in the day, it probably wasn't orange, but you get the idea, shackled at the bottom of a boat, how do you get people to listen to what he has to say? Unless I switch things, unless I turn the tables, unless I put this guy in charge somehow, some way. How do I do this? How do I get Paul in charge of this whole traveling situation, You know, this this trip? I got to bring a storm. I got to bring a storm. So they're seeing it. They're starting to feel it. They're starting to feel that pressure. Verse 9, Now, when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the first was already over, or the fast was already over, and what they mean by that is Yom Kippur is over. That's how we know it's middle of October, end of October. Paul advised them, saying, so here's the man in the jumpsuit (laughs) with the shackles on, giving advice to a ship captain. Squeaky, ugly, hook-nosed Paul tiny little Jew boy is going to give advice to 
this Alexandrian Grecian ship, and Julius, the head guy of the Roman, you know, regiment around Julius Caesar. Let me give you some advice, guys. I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And you can kind of see his point. The prisoner doesn't want to go to Rome. Of course you don't want to go to Rome. Because death waits for you there. I don't think we should go. (laughs) You know, that's like the prisoner transport. You know, come on, guys, get in the van. I don't think we should go. I think we're going to get a flat tire. Yeah, I bet. Well, we're going to Leavenworth anyway, you know. So you can kind of see their point. But here's the thing. Paul carried himself in such a way that eventually by the end of this trip, they listened to him, you know. He he is going to have a, and I told you so moment. I'll, spoiler alert. He's going to have that moment, but he doesn't take advantage of it. He doesn't rub it into the point where pride is hurt. I mean, this centurion, in order to get to where he is, he had to have been battle-hardened. He had to have proven himself to get to this place. I mean, Rome had a huge, huge army, and in order for you to start here and end up here, a lot of things have to take place. A lot of eye-catching has to go on, a lot of victories, a lot of wisdom. You know, this guy isn't stupid. He's not, you know, he's made his way to the top here. And so Paul's going to have to, I don't know, teach him. God's going to have to teach him through this moment. So I don't think this is going to go well. And you have to hear that prophecy first, see that prophecy come to pass before you can believe the next things out of this guy's mouth. And guys, that's what God does with us. That's how God ministers to not only us before we're saved, but after we're saved. I want you to trust me. I don't know if I can or not. Well, here, let me start off by telling you what's going to happen before it happens. Then when it happens, we realize we could have trusted those words. Now, the next time he talks to me, I can take those words to the bank just as much as I could take those last words to the bank. That's how faith is increased. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I'll add, seeing the Word of God come to pass. I don't think I'm adding too much to Scripture. I'm pretty sure I could find a Scripture that would tie into that, but that's the idea. And so Paul says, hey, God told me this, so you know this is going to end badly. Mm, Yeah, right. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, the harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Okay, I'll fill you in a little bit on this. You could winter here, but it wasn't suitable to winter, and they put it up for a vote because it said, most said, let's get on with it. We don't want to winter there. We want to winter in Crete. Faces the south. It's where the Cretans are. I mean, that's where you get that slang word. You're a Cretan means you weren't very uh, noble. Um, the women there weren't exactly ladies. And the sailors and the centurions were thinking, I don't want to winter in the middle of nowhere. I want to mint winter in Crete, where we can keep ourselves occupied all winter long. That's putting it mildly. We got a southwest beach blocking us from the northwest winter. We've got freedom 
<laughs> we've got four or five months of, hey, you know, we can do whatever we want with our liberty time. Um, the sailors said, no, I want to get there. Let's go there. Well, they're not going to make it. They should have listened to Paul. Now, when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, yes, we're going to make it to Crete. Putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called a Euroclidian, or Euroclidon, I think. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. That'd probably be the title of the message tonight, maybe, for all of our lives. Not let her drive, but let him drive. Let her means let the ship go. Just let the winds take us where they will. There's not much we can do about it. We can fight it all we want. We can tack back and forth against this headwind, trying to make it, but this is way too much for us. It's three steps forward and two steps back, if not the other way around. So we let her drive. And when we let God take control of our lives and let him drive, when we let him just take us where he needs us to go, obviously the way I want to go isn't where God wants to go. I'm going to let it go. And he's going to blow me where he wants to blow me. There's a, there's a first of all, a relief there, a little bit of anxiety probably, but a lot of relief. It's not in my control. There's something about it when God takes complete control out of your hands. There's something that's peaceful about that to me. I fight. I do that tacking back and forth. Ah, oh, I got to get there. I got to do it. And you're just swimming against the current, it feels like, you know. When finally there comes a point when something happens in your life, that you, I can't even swim against the current if I wanted to. You can just lay back and let it go, you know. Something about that. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff, that's the little ship that they get, you know, go ship to shore, with difficulty. They got that tied down. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship and fearing lest they should run aground uh, on the uh, Sirtis Sands, I don't know, they struck sail and so were driven. So they even dropped the sails. That's how bad. They didn't want to break their mast off, in other words. You can put your sails up, but if it's too, too much, the wind will take those sails and snap that mast. Well, we've got to save that, so we just dropped the sails, secured the skiff, and undergird with cables. You know what undergirding is with the cables for the ship? You've got a big wooden ship. It's kind of like a boat out belly like that. Well, they would, <laughs> I don't know how they went about it. If, if, the, if it was calm enough and they knew it was calming, the guys would take it and they would swim under the boat with these cables and bring it to the other side. And then they cinch it up tight, you know, so you've got these metal cables, maybe every, I don't know, six to eight feet, uh, not metal, but they would be ropes. They would tighten it up, you know, with tackle and all that. And that would really suck in it so it wouldn't break apart in case there was a bad night. I don't know what they do during a storm. Unless they got some, did they, did they just draw, throw it out in front of them and then kind of let it and then pull it up or something? I don't know. Maybe they just brought it around the front or I don't know how they would do that. Um, anyway, quite a deal. I mean, it was quite, a, quite an undertaking. And so they would do that and tie this boat up tight, uh, keeping those boards, you know, and everything all, all pulled in tight so nothing would break loose. So they've done that. They're really in it now for the long haul. So they did this undergirding, and they've got it ready, and they're going to let it drive. On the third day, um, oh wait, and because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. 
Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. Now, remember, when Paul says, I don't think this is going to go well, I think we're going to lose our lives, Paul doesn't know yet at this point that they're going to be saved. He just thinks it's being fulfilled like was told him. This is going to go bad quickly. You know, it's not going to go well. Um, and so now they've all hope's been given up. Um, that's a long time to not see the sun or the stars. First of all, you won't know where you are. You can't guide yourself. You have no idea where you are in the middle of this Mediterranean Sea. It's your, you, you know, and talk about seasick. I mean, it is constant. No small tempest. There was not a small wave. Every wave was a bad wave, you know, crashing over the top. But after long, after, but after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. Here's his I told you so moment. You should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Notice he waits till everybody is seasick and hasn't eaten for several days and all hope is lost before he stands up as the tiny little Jewish guy with the hooked nose who's ugly and says, I told you so, you know. Make sure those sailors can't throw a punch. I throw that in there. I, the Bible does not say that at all, obviously. But he does wait till the right time. I told you this is going to happen. And now, since I told you that, reminding you that I prophesied about this happening, and now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. We have to shipwreck before we can be saved. That's something we should probably memorize that verse 25. It's all going to be great, but we've got to shipwreck first. First, we have to lose everything that we trust in. First, we have to lose everything that we hope in. First, we have to lose everything that we've grabbed onto, and then we'll be saved. We're going to lose the ship. We're going to lose everything on the ship, but we're going to save our lives in the process. Is it worth it? I'd say it is. It is worth it. It's worth it to lose everything that you hold dear in this world to gain your life. I think Jesus said that, didn't he? Of course it is. You'd be surprised how many people... Well, I guess I shouldn't know. I know. I don't know that that's what God's doing in their lives, but it, it, it hints at that. He's trying to take away everything else so that you focus on the family not to quote Dobson for any reason, but really, God will, everything that's distracting us from what's important in our lives, if we've cried out to God for help in the middle of this tempest-tossed life that we have, it's not unusual, let's put it that way, for God to take away everything of value monetarily and all so that the people can be the focus. I want to get rid of everything that's in the way. I want everybody to hear what you have to say, Paul, because you know what? This ship and this cargo is not near as important as the salvation of the souls of the people on this ship. 
That's what's important, not the ship. The ship doesn't matter. The cargo doesn't matter. It's the people that matter. That's all that matters is people. God is focused on people. Look at the difference here between Jonah and Paul. Both are great men of God. Jonah, a prophet. Paul, I'd say he's a prophet. He prophesied just now, so I think it's fair to call him a prophet. Um, But Jonah prophesied and then hoped that the prophecy would come true, that all life was lost. That was his hope. That's why he sat on the hill watching Nineveh, just waiting for judgment, 40 days till judgment. Boy, it can't come soon enough for Jonah. He was upset when God showed them grace and mercy. He was upset when he brought when he granted them repentance. He was upset, and God corrected him on that. But a great man of God, still a prophet used of God. Whereas Paul, a great man of God, didn't want loss of life, did want everybody saved, was hoping for the people. You know, a big difference between the Pauls of this world and the Jonas of this world. Both can be tools in God's hands, but one is doing it as a grudging obligation. The other one is doing it with joy in their heart, hoping, hoping. I want to focus here on that verse 26, um, actually verse 25. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. That's what I want to focus on. Paul is not going off presumption. I really think I'm speaking it by faith that God will save us from this disaster. How do you know he will? See, Paul knows he will because God stood beside him, an angel stood beside him and told him it was going to happen that way. So Paul, on the authority of God's word, or this angel's messenger's word, can state unequivocally that we will survive this because God's messenger told me that we will. That's faith. I believe that hasn't happened yet, but because God said so, I believe it. That is true faith. It is not faith to, before this messenger comes, to state, I, I claim it in God's name, in Jesus' name, that this is going to happen. That's presumption. That's sin. God's never called us to that. God's never called us to assume he'll do what we've asked him to do because we've said the abracadabra words. I'll give you an example. How many of you have memorized Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We use that word as if it's some kind of spell that we can cast at any given time at any given situation. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It'd be better to memorize 11 and 12 with that verse 13. 11 and 12 state this. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be confident to be content. I know how to be abased and how to be how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be um, hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's how much we should measure and memorize all three verses. So we keep it in context. So we understand what Paul was saying when he wrote that. You can't just preach an incantation and hope that God makes it happen. He's not a genie. He doesn't do that. But he will keep his word. I don't know that God will heal you. I don't know that he will. 
Paul prayed several times for people to be healed and yet left them sick, Timothy being one of them. Okay? Um, It doesn't always happen because the Bible says that if I pray with faith, it's going to take place, but then did Paul not have enough faith, or was it not God's will for that person to be healed? Jesus prayed in the garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Cup being the cross, but there wasn't. And so... By faith, Jesus went to the cross. I'm going to go because that's my Father's will. That's what his word tells me to do. That's what I want to do. It's what's best. It's so important we understand this. It's so important that we share this with those who flippantly put those things up as memes in their life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you if he calls you to it. If he calls you to it. But not by presumption. Paul doesn't speak by presumption. At the beginning, he says, we're going to lose our lives. He doesn't presumptuously say, I don't think we're going to lose our lives. I've prayed. It's not until the angel stands before him, the messenger stands beside him, gives him that assurance from God, look, you're going to lose the ship, but not your lives. Things have changed. That Paul's able to say, I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. He gives them that. That's important. We've got to get shipwrecked, guys. It's in the shipwreck that God gets glory. It's in the shipwreck that people begin to listen to Paul. It's in the shipwreck that God begins to be believed on and trusted in and faith is beginning to spark in all those on that ship. There's uh, 276 people on this boat, one of which knows the true and living God. He's now in charge. The guy in the orange jumpsuit with the shackles in the belly of the ship is now in charge. It's funny how that happens. Whether he's in prison preaching to Festus and the gang, he's not on trial, they are. On the ship, the prisoner are the 276 that need to figure out that God is a true and living God and that they need to believe in him and trust him. And they're going to learn that from Paul, who's the prisoner or who they think is. So important. Verse 27. Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. That's a, just a, a, it's a parable. The whole thing is just an amazing picture of my life. You got some guys saying, hey, we're going to put out some anchors off the front of the boat like we did off the back, really get it secured. Not really. We're going to get off this sinking boat and we're going to get this skiff and we're going to get to shore because I ain't waiting for daylight. We're going to get this done. And Paul knew it. Paul knew it. Talk about a word of knowledge. 
hey, those guys aren't about to do anchors. You see, yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. They're not doing anchors. They're going to try to get away. And if they get away or they try to get away, we're all dead. And the soldiers looked at these guys and go, is that what you guys are going to do? No, we weren't going to do that. Yeah, you were. And they, they whack that thing and they drop it in the ocean. No one's getting up. We're all going down together. We're all being saved together. We're all in this together. And they cut that rope. And they cut that skiff. They cut that lifeboat, that lifeline, that last little thing, that plan B. They cut it. They dropped it in the ocean. They got rid of it completely. It's hard to get rid of plan B. You want to pray to God. You want to trust God. You want to let him do whatever he wants to do with your life. But if it doesn't work out, you've got plan B. That skiff has to go. The skiff's got to be cut. And only you know what that skiff is in your life. Only I know what that skiff is in my life. That skiff's got to be cut loose. It can't be my go-to in case God fails. That is the absence of faith. James describes that in James chapter 1, verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like, interestingly enough, a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I think James was thinking of this, maybe. You can't. You can't ask God to save you, but if it doesn't work out, you've got plan B. That is doubt. And James warns us about that. These guys need to trust completely in the Lord. They can't have that tiny thing. And so he tells them, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut away the ropes. Based off of whose word? Off Paul's word. We don't hear a word from Julius. We don't see him saying, yeah, do what Paul says. Everybody's listening to Paul. Paul says, guys, if these guys get off, none of us are making it. Enough said. Julius is like, I don't think I'm in charge anymore. My guys are doing what Paul wants them to do. And you know what? Julius says, that's just fine with me. He's not arguing. You don't hear him saying, hey, guys, I'm the one in charge. I'm the guy. I've got the big red thing on top of my head. What the cool Roman soldiers do. I'm the guy with the big rooster tail. You know, he's like, do what Paul says. He just lets him. There comes a time when you have to realize that. There's no pride here. Julius has made his way to the top, not based off of pride, not based off of selfishness, but always looking out for his men, always looking out for his guys. That's someone you can trust in leadership. Is someone who's looking out for people, not looking out for their own self-interests. That's who you can trust. Always be wary of the person that's looking out for their own self-interest. Watch him carefully. Not Paul. Not Julius. These guys understand each other. Paul is a man who is battle-hardened, spiritually speaking. Julius is a man who is battle-hardened. They see it. They see it in each other. And as the day, or as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited uh, and continued without food and eaten nothing. It's been 14, it's been two weeks since you guys, and not, most of them probably couldn't keep anything down, maybe. But they're fasting. They don't know what to do. I mean, they've despaired of life. What's the point of eating? And Paul says, hey guys, I told you, we're all going to make it. We're not going to lose anybody. Let's, therefore, I urge you take to take nourishment. For this is uh, for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. That's comforting. 
This is the guy that warned us not to go. This is the guy that says we're going to be okay. He says not one of our hairs are going to go. I want you guys to eat. You need to eat. And you need to eat now. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. We're going to throw this wheat overboard, eat it while we've got it. This is going to be your last meal from this ship's cargo. Enjoy it, but we're tossing it afterwards. You know, it's almost ceremonial. It's almost a picture, you know. As Paul's breaking this bread and giving thanks to God, you can't help but kind of think, well, you know, Jesus kind of did that at the table. Yeah, this is literally their last supper with this ship's cargo. After that, they're going to be completely reliant upon whatever God has for them on the shore. Nothing else is going to be taken on shore from this boat. We're breaking it, we're eating it, we're throwing it overboard, and we're trusting God from here on out. It's a beautiful picture. Wonderful picture as Paul leads. What a great leader. What, a, what an amazing leader. Now, these guys don't have to follow him. They don't have to believe him, but they are. And they're going to be so blessed because they followed him, because they trusted in him, because they believed him at his word. They're going to be so blessed. Jesus tried to lead that way. I say tried because there were 72 people that got sent out on this missions trip on their own, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus sends them out in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. And they came back. Actually, in 17 is when they're coming back. They come back, and they're so excited about what God did with them. They're so excited about the demons obeying them and people getting healed. It was just this amazing experience. So a pretty good leader. But you know what? By the time he gets to the cross all forsake him, including those 72 that experienced the power of God, walked in the will of God, did his bidding, saw amazing supernatural things taking place as they walked by faith, but they left. They left that. Leadership's leadership. It doesn't do any good if the people don't follow. Nothing you can do about it. You can show your kids. You can be an example to them. You can show them what it's like to follow Christ. You can live a Christ-centered, Christ-filled life, not just centered. I didn't even like to use that. That means like, well, we just really bounce off of Christ every day. No, not just Christ-centered. I mean, we ate and breathed Jesus in our house. And they saw the example, and they have witnessed the miraculous things that God has done with our relationship and our walk. But they still can walk away. They still may walk away. It's not about the leadership. It's about the following. We have a great example in Paul. We have a great example in Jesus to follow their leading. And if we do, we will be totally blessed if we follow the will of God, if we trust and have faith in the will of God. If we don't, it's not their fault. It's not that they didn't lead right. It's that we didn't follow right. It's interesting when the 72 walk away from Jesus because he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and they didn't quite understand what he was saying and so they left him. You know what verse number that is in chapter? I know those aren't inspired. The chapter numbers and the verses aren't from the word of God. They've been added later on. But the number is John chapter 6, verse 66. It's an interesting verse. 
666 is when they walked away from trusting in Jesus. Verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go of the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for the shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. They hit that thing hard. You ever hit the curb unexpectedly when you're parking a car and it kind of lurches? <clears throat> Imagine this. Put up the mainsail. Let go of the anchors. The wind's driving us towards the sword. All of a sudden, you hit rocks. I, about, I, I picture 12 guys going overboard, but they probably didn't. I don't know. But, I mean, that's, I mean that is a dead stop. And all of a sudden, it's just getting smashed. Mm-mm, this ship ain't making it to the sand. You will, but the ship's not going to make it. So it's going to get crushed here. It's all necessary. It's all by design. It's also that God gets glory. It's also that people get saved. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should, sh- should jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was. They all escaped safely to land. They made it. They did it. Now, when they had escaped, they then found out that the island was called Malta. And the natives showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw that the creature hanging from his hand, saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow to live. Again, what a great parable. What is Paul doing? Paul's been on the ship like everybody else. What's Paul doing? Paul's serving. I'll get the sticks. Now, maybe it's because he was a, you know, a prisoner, and the prisoners are going to get the sticks. The soldiers aren't. But at this point, everybody's about equal, wouldn't you say? You know, we made it. Paul's out gathering sticks for these guys to get warm. The, the townsmen, all the people there are making a fire for these guys. Obviously, they've already got wood. And Paul says, I'll help you pick up sticks and bring them over. And he gets bit by a snake. Now, the cool thing about this, he doesn't get hurt by the snake, Okay. But the snake bite alone would have been enough for me to say, this is what I get. This is what I get for helping. Stupid snake. Get your own sticks. You know, that's enough for me. Not Paul. Paul just shakes it off, throws it into the fire. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said, that he was a god. Now, this is a great movie scene if you've ever seen. I mean, this is it. Ah, this giant snake. Ah, throw it into the fire. And he's sitting there. And now all the other people are just like this. He's getting puppy. Is he getting puppy? And they're just watching him for a long time. And Paul's probably like, okay, this is awkward. They're all staring at Paul, waiting for him to blow up and just swell up and die. But he didn't. So he goes from being a murderer 
who escaped the sea, but God, the gods are after him because he got bit by this terribly poisonous viper to now he's a god. People are that way, you know? You are a murderer. You are a god. This is a, not sound familiar? Remember in 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Acts uh, chapter 14, verse 11, when Paul and Barnabas, you know, you're a god. They start off with their gods because they were amazing, and then they wanted to kill them later on. They switched, they flipped back and forth. Here's the thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, if you want to turn there, I didn't write it down, didn't have space. I tried to write everything down in here so I don't have to flip around too much, and I can just read it to you, but I didn't have room for this one. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 15 and 16. This is concerning us as Christians, as believers. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Don't be concerned about being misjudged by everybody else in the world. That's what they do. You'll never be judged properly by someone who isn't spiritually minded, who isn't a believer. They're always going to look at you skeptically or they're going to assume the worst. That's just the way it is. We have to let God be the protector of our reputation. You have to let God be strong on your behalf. He has to be our refuge. He has to be our, our, our advocate. We have to trust him with that. You will never be judged rightly by those who aren't spiritual. You'll never, but trust yourself. As a Christian, as a believer who has the mind of Christ, you will judge things properly. That's a, that's a faith thing. That's a difficult thing for us sometimes. Well, I don't want to prejudge. You, you probably aren't. You're probably getting a word of knowledge from the Lord. It's probably a supernatural event taking place. You can see it. You, can, you know where this is headed. I know how this is going to turn out. I, I'm not a pessimist. I just I think the ship is going to go south. It's not going to go well. That's a prophecy, you know. Because none of the circumstances around Paul at the time of that prophecy indicated that it wasn't going to go well. He just knew we shouldn't sail. This is not going to go well. It wasn't based off of experience, although he had a lot of experience in this area. He wasn't saying, I've been through this before. He was saying, no, I really have a sense that this is not going to go well. We're going to lose not only the cargo of the ship, but also our lives if we go, if we sail. God, God wants to use you in that way. He wants to use us in that way. He wants to give us a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom in these things, and you have the mind of Christ. That's okay. You don't always have to say it out loud, but trust it. Trust the Holy Spirit. Trust his leading. Trust his guiding. Trust his word. Very important. Learn to trust that in him. Okay, so people aren't going to judge you right. He's a murderer. Oh, he's a god. And, and Paul, you know what? It doesn't change what he does. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gather sticks whether I get bit. It was in the biting of the snake that the people now, see the, the guys on board, the sailors trust God's word, 270 six men. They trust Paul's word based off their experience with him knowing what was going on. Now, how do I get this island people to know who this Paul is, who's a prisoner still in an orange jumpsuit with shackles? How do I get them to trust? Paul, sorry, but you got to get bit by a very poisonous viper and you've got to survive it. It's in that bite. It's in, it hurts to get bit by a snake. 
These things, these fangs, they sink into you and they've got barbs and they hang on and you're wiggling around actually causes the juices to flow out those hollow tubes, which are fangs, and get the venom into you. And he's, you know, doing that. But it's in that painful snake bite. It's in that event in the middle of your serving. I can't believe I'm serving and I got bit by a snake. God, couldn't you protect me from the snake bite? Oh, I will, but I I wanted you to get bit. I know that kind of hurt, but I also wanted you to survive the venom so that these people can now receive the word of God from you. Paul is just that way. Paul lived that way. I don't count my life dear to myself. Whatever. Snake bite? Hey, if it works, whatever you want to do. I don't know that I'm there yet. I don't know about the rest of you, but I want to be. I want to get to that place of faith where it's like, yeah, shipwreck away. As long as it brings people to you, Lord, as long as it brings you glory. In that region, there was an estate of the leading citizen of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. Paul went into him and prayed, and he laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. This ministry had to take place. This whole shipwreck, this whole event was so that this guy's dad could get healed, so this island could hear the gospel. This island, they didn't even know about it in the sense that they didn't stop there. They didn't frequent it. They didn't recognize the landscape. When they saw the bay, they're like, I don't even know where we are. They figured it out when they landed. They were on the, These guys... Or they they ship they they'd sail all the time past this thing, but nobody ever stopped here. How do I get the people on this island saved? Who will go for me? Who will stay? Who will who will go? Who's willing to get shipwrecked? Who's willing to have a snake bite? Who's willing to be a prisoner in chains? Who will go for me? And it takes someone to stand up and say, "Here I am, Lord, send me. I'll go." I'll go to this island of Malta that everybody passes by because they're so close to Rome, because they're so close to Syracuse, the next uh, port. Who'd go to Malta? Why would you go there? I need someone to preach in Malta. Will you go? I'll go. Shipwreck me. I'll go. After three months, we sailed an an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which uh, had wintered at that island. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed three days. From there, we circled around and reached uh, Regium. And after one day, the south wind blew. And the next day, we came to uh, uh, Petioli. I have to work that out. Petioli. How that sound in Roman? Petioli. Hey, that's good. Yeah, put a little thing on it. Uh, Petioli. That does help, you know. Spaghetti. Petulioli. Yeah. Where we found, yeah, it's late. Where we found brethren, and were invited to stay with them seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, uh, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi, Appi, Forum, and uh, and uh, three inns. Uh, then Paul saw them. He thanked God and took courage. Now, when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard. But Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Got a lot of liberty after that trip. Are these the prisoners? Yeah, but this guy's got his own place. You know, 
There's some respect there. And it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So when they had come together, he said to them, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who, when they had examined me, wanted to let me go, because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you, to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. He's a little defensive before he starts his message. Hey, I just want you to know, these chains, unearned. Here's how it went down. He's a little defensive when he starts. Then they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who uh, came reported or spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you and what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. Oh, we didn't know all that about you, Paul. We still want to hear about you, you know. Oh. Nobody wrote letters about me. Nobody told you I was an evil, wicked guy. I didn't have to, like, do that preemptive strike thing with my defense. No. We want to hear all about it. Oh. Okay. I just, I love that. Uh, it's so real. He, he's been beaten up so many times. He's had so many riots started. Um, he's got such a reputation. For years he's been in prison. Certainly everybody knows that he is a wicked, terrible guy. And he starts off with, there's like, no, it's a clean slate here. I mean, we know about this sect. We know it's not very popular, but we want to hear everything you have to say to us about it. That's great. I like that. So when they appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Now, here's the thing. We skipped over it. It's back in verse 20. It's for the hope of Israel I am bound with these chains. The hope of Israel was the hope of a Messiah, a king, who would come and save them. David died with that hope. Everybody in the Old Testament before Christ died with that hope of Israel. If they trusted the Messiah, if they trusted in God to save them, they all died. And Paul says, I am in prison or I am in chains for this hope of Israel. And I'm going to explain it to you. And so from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he taught them from the Old Testament about this Messiah and how Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise. And some were persuaded by the things which were spoken, and some disbelieved. Disbelieved. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what the crowd is. Some are going to believe. Some are not going to believe. You can't worry about that. You can't worry about getting 100%. You can't worry about 80%, 75%, 50%. You can't worry about who's going to believe and who's not going to believe. You preach. You share the truth. That's all you can do. Some will believe and some won't. Some will follow Paul's leadership. Some won't follow Paul's leadership. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. Some will follow Jesus. Some won't follow Jesus. There's nothing you can do. Your job is not to make people believe. You do want to convince. I mean, that's part of it. But you can't make their heart trust in Christ. That's something they have to do. They have to do that. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophets to our fathers, saying, go to this people and say, hearing you will hear and shall not understand. And seeing you will see and not perceive. 
For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. God prophesied about this. Um, This is a a prophecy out of Isaiah chapter 6, that they weren't going to believe, that they weren't going to listen. And Paul says this, not to all the audience, but to the disbelievers. The believers, this doesn't apply to. That's important. This prophecy about the nation of Israel having dull hearts and, and, and blind eyes is not about all of them. It's only about those who disbelieve. The believers are good to go. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. That was his last word to the unbelievers. That's right, I'm going to the Gentiles now. They'll believe it, and you won't. And I think that's Luke's point in putting this at the end of his book of Acts. He wants to put an exclamation point to all who might read this book. If you're a part of this crowd, some were persuaded and some aren't, understand that you were prophesied about. It's for everybody. It's for everybody even here tonight. Some will believe and some won't believe. And when they had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. No doubt. Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things uh, which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. He just got to preach. Paul would be chained to a centurion or a Roman soldier as a guard constantly for two years. What do you think they talked about? Hey, you're new. What's your name? Uh, My name's Bob. I'm not supposed to talk to you. Okay, don't talk. Listen. And he shared with him about Christ. Later on in a couple of his letters, he actually says that to him. For those of you who are in Caesar's household, the believers in Caesar's household, he writes to them, because Paul gets out of this mess, by the way. They got saved. They got saved. Paul was... uh, He looked like the prisoner, but actually they were chained to him. (laughs) They were chained to him, not the other way around. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your encouragement. The world may think we're chained. The world may think that they've got us. They've got us in the spot where they want us, but actually they're the ones who are going to have to listen. And uh, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't close our mouths, that we wouldn't consider poor me uh, when our circumstances aren't ideal, when they're not perfect, when they're not even close to being perfect, when we're shipwrecked, God, I pray that we wouldn't say, poor me, but uh, we would have eyes to see what you're doing, that it's a part of the plan, that it's a part of your calling upon our lives, that it's in the shipwreck, it's in the snake bite, it's in the the arrest, it's in the trip uh, to judgment um, from an unjust judge that we get to preach you and that you get glory, and that people will listen because we walk by faith and we hear your word and we don't speak by presumption, um, but we, we believe you. And people see that in our walk, God. I pray that you make us strong in faith. Increase our faith, Father. Help us to trust you, trust, trust your word. When you speak, we believe it, God. Um, and that that would increase our faith and that we'd be able to grow greater and greater things for you, God. Little steps now, but big steps later, we hope, Lord. Peter was able to walk on water with you for a while. He took a few steps, God. Um, More than I've ever done. Um, 
So God, I pray that you get us to that place where you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.